Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to uh, have us go live, but um, uh, just a word about that. Our service is going to be a little bit different, and Jennifer is going to put out uh, lots of information about that uh, this afternoon. And so we'll require a, a one-time registration and, um, and a few other details that you'll need to take note of. Uh, there'll be registration at the door, but uh, once we get your registration information, if, if it all stays the same, you're going to be good to go. So we're excited about regathering and what the Lord's going to do uh, in this new chapter, and we're absolutely committed to uh, maintain uh, a pastoral care and a heart uh, for those that are going to be our, our, our really our third worship service and really our third campus, which is uh, Church at Home. And so we'll be gathering uh, here at 8.30 for a 50-minute service, uh, which reminds me i got to get going, but, uh, and then at 10 o'clock for about a 50-minute service, and then Church at Home. And as you know, Manchester has two services, one in, one in English at uh, 9.30 and then a French service at 11.00. So there's lots of opportunities to connect with us, and we hope that you'll continue to do that. Um, and like I said, the service is only going to be about 50, 55 minutes. Uh, that way we can keep everybody safe and gives us an opportunity to clean and sanitize and make this place, like, super, super safe. So we hope that you'll be able to join us, and we hope that you'll stay connected with us online. So this morning... Uh, we're going to uh, continue our study in 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, if you come with me to 1 John, uh, there's really two texts that we're going to consider uh, this morning because they, they complement one another. And so we're going to be looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. We've already worked through it, and so we're just going to capture the highlights of it because it complements... Uh, the next section that we're working through in First uh, John chapter four, uh, verses one through six, and so we're going to cover both of those because it really has to do with uh, when we look at the big picture. It really has to do with spiritual warfare, and the apostle John unpackages spiritual warfare in an amazingly practical level. Like all of you would know, if I said Ephesians chapter six. And, and I mentioned spiritual warfare, you would say what? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in high places. Well, how does that apply to church life? What does that look like in church life? What does it look like in church when a church is doing spiritual battles? And so 1 John and 2 John really kind of help us to understand that there are demonic spirits, yes, but those demonic spirits influence people. And when we begin to grapple with the depth of this as a local church, that there is a demonic spirit that is influencing people. And when we look at John, John is in Ephesus, a real church at a real time, in a real place, is what we can see is what those manifestations look like so that when they happen in our local assembly, that when those evil spirits, those false spirits, begin to influence the hearts of people, we're, we're not shocked by it, we're not surprised by it, because every church 
every New Testament church that is preaching the gospel, is glorifying Jesus Christ, is calling sinners to repentance, and is, and is all in with a gospel message that Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, that he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Christ, a church with that type of disposition has on its back a great big target that the enemy wants to fire at, shoot his arrows at, and how do we respond to that? How can we recognize it? How can we see it? Well, when we come to 1 John, if I was to ask you, what is the default understanding if someone to, would read 1 John? What is the thing that people hang their hat on? It would be love, wouldn't it? Well, you've you got to love the brothers. You've got to love the sisters. And love is a test of whether you're regenerate, whether you've come to faith in Christ. Love is, love is a test. But it, it, most Christians avoid the context, or what we could put a different way, the situation in life. Most Christians avoid that. They don't talk about the spiritual battle that's going on in Ephesus. That prompts John to give the test. And so when we engage the gospel, we're engaging in a great spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. There's a great spiritual battle going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the local church is in the, is, is in the middle of that. And the local church has a target, if we could use this way of talking, has a target on its back. Now, I mentioned in the introduction to 1 John that we're in Ephesus. 1 John was written, depending upon what scholar you read, anywhere between 85 and 110 A.D. Because John was an elderly man, and he's pastoring at Ephesus. Well, back in Paul's third missionary journey, in, say, Acts chapter 20, come there with me. In Acts chapter 20, Paul prophesies of what's going to happen in, in the future for the church at Ephesus. So come with me to Acts chapter 20. And what Paul's going to lay out is the, is the prophetically is that there is going to be a great spiritual battle at Ephesus. And so we're in Acts chapter 20. It's Paul's third missionary journey. It's around 55 to 56 A.D., so it's about 50 years before the Apostle John writes 1 John to the folks at Ephesus. Note what Paul says 50 years before it happens to the elders at Ephesus. That's, it's an amazing uh, connection when you, when you string it all together. So we look at Acts chapter 20 in verse, say, 29. I know Paul's writing this. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so fast forward to 1 John, where 50 years later, and John is dealing with a local assembly, Ephesus, where there's this spiritual battle going on that's coming not from outside 
onto the church, but it comes from inside where evil spirits, false spirits, get a hold of people's hearts and begin to woo them away from being Christ-centered, gospel-centered, for the purpose of deception and destroying the church. It happened in John's day, and it happens in our day, is that as people move their focus away from being Christ-centered, as they move their focus away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and get it on other things, what happens is, is that the gospel, that the gospel becomes distorted and that person's heart becomes driven by something that's unbiblical or a secular ideology. And we wonder, we're like, like as a church, we're like shocked that this would happen in our midst. But this is the spiritual warfare that the Apostle Paul alludes to from Acts chapter 20 that will come to the church at Ephesus. And what we see contextually here, we see John dealing with that. We see John confronting the false teachers of his day, the false prophets of his day. And he does that by identifying them in 1 John chapter 2. And then he gives the underlying motivation for it in our text in 1 John chapter 4. So let's look at 1 John 2, 18 through 28. Like I said, we've already covered it, but you've got a set of study notes that are online. I'd encourage you to pull them up so that you can track along with this because each and every church that wants to proclaim the gospel will be challenged in that proclamation. I've said for years that to keep a church gospel Christ-centered requires two people, right? Or two groups of people. It requires the pastor to have courage to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes a pastor that has courage to say he's the only way to salvation. He's the way, the truth, the life. It takes courage to, in the face of, of a culture that is going down the tubes. It takes courage for a pastor to say, no, we're going to stay resolute. We're going to stay focused on the gospel. We're going to stay focused on Jesus Christ because he's the answer. And only through spiritual regeneration do we have and gain the ability to sacrificially agape love people. Without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have that capability. And we drift back to our Adamic nature. We drift back to our federal head, which is Adam, rather than living our life under Christ and that new headship that we get through regeneration and adoption. And so when we, when we look at 1 John chapter 2, we can note several things. John says this, in the last hour, in the last hour, and we're living in that last hour. The last hour is between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. He says that they went out from on, among us. They went out from us in verse 19. And so the false teachers in the Antichrist were, were actually a part of the assembly. They came up into the assembly. They, they may have even confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were part of the church. And then what happened is that they were really, truly 
not born again. They were not saved. And the enemy invaded their hearts and lives and began to turn them to actively thwart and to actively deceive and to actively destroy a local church. If we are unaware that that is the plan of the enemy for our church, we are going to be like devastated when we see something like that happens in the midst of us. But, but having pastored here now for 34 years, we can see from time to time, maybe every decade or so or every 8 to 10 years, we can see that dynamic in our local church. We can see someone that, that comes up from among us that has given testimony that, oh, they're, they're all in for Jesus, and they know him. And we, what we see is that person truly being unregenerated, and they turn and they try to destroy the work of God. It happens in every church, and, and when it does happen, the pastor has to have courage to go back to that little thing. It takes two people to keep a a gospel-centered church, takes a pastor that has, has courage, and what's the second one? It takes a people to insist upon it. And so in a, in a, in a New Testament church, when a, when a person begins rising up and begins to turn in an attempt to destroy the work of the church, we want to act how? We want to not judge. We want to love the person. We want to try to retain the person. We want to try to speak truth to the person. All to what? All to no avail. Because their heart is truly unregenerate. And their heart does not meet the test. And what's the test? What's the major test that John gives? Is do you love? Do you love the brethren? Do you care? Do you have agape love? And so they go, what John speaks in verse 10 is that they really weren't part of us. So they went out to continue in 2023, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? I write these things, verses 22 through 28, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so we have to face reality in our culture today. We have to face the reality that there are antichrists in our culture, there are antichrists that are in the church, that their sole objective is to deceive and to lead God's people away. And when we understand that we are in that spiritual battle, when we understand that it's not flesh and blood, we can have kindness for that person in the midst of the conflict, we can have compassion for that person in the midst of the conflict, but we must stand on the gospel. We cannot yield the gospel. We cannot yield that the answer to society's problems today is someone, something, some ideology, some other thing other than Jesus Christ. If we do, all we have to do is look at our community. All we have to do is look at the churches in our community that were once vibrant but now have more of a social agenda. We can look at churches in our community that have a form of godliness, but deny the power of God. They deny by their action that Jesus Christ can save and transform and change a person from the inside out by, by wooing them by the Spirit and bringing them to a place where they confess Christ as Lord and Savior. If you think this culture is neutral, 
If you think this cultural culture right now is favorable to the church, all you have to do is look at what happened in Las Vegas this past week, where Caesar's palace has been given the full go-ahead in Las Vegas. And the churches in Las Vegas have been given a mandate not to exceed 50 people. And yet, and yet the brothels, yeah, the brothels and the casinos and the decadence, they have a full endorsement even from our own Supreme Court by a four to three ruling that says the church must stay basically closed. If you think culture is favorable towards the church, you are sorely mistaken. And the reason for that is that any church that has a gospel focus, a Christ-centered focus, has a target on its back, and, and his destiny is eventual victory, which we're going to see in our text, but the enemy would like to destroy each and every one of those churches. And so when people rise up from our own midst and say, oh no, we need to shift our focus. Oh no, we, we can't be, we need to somehow quiet that crazy Irishman who believes Jesus is the only way to heaven. We need to have courage, courage to proclaim it, and, and the people must insist on it, for it is the only hope of our culture. Let's go to our text today. It's 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6. And the underlying, motivating, empowering force for these antichrists is a demonic spirit. 1 John 4, 1, th 1 through 6. Let's look at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. How can we miss this in 1 John? You know, I, I got a few comments when I, when I decided to launch in 1 John. Oh, he's going for the love book. What a surprise it's been for folks that we're talking about spiritual warfare and evil and and the enemy's desire to, to destroy the church because we failed to see the context of the test for love. The test for love comes about in John's writing because the false prophets and the false teachers did not love the brethren. They hated the brethren, and they, they sought to divide and destroy the church. And so John says to them, wake up. Wake up. Not every spirit is of God. And so he calls them to test the spirit. John warns of evil spirits who inspire. Now, in the, in the first century church, we can look at what some of those inspired things were. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and chapter 14 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. They had a false use of the prophetic, a false use of tongues a false use of glossolalia. And so they were mimicking those things. They weren't, they weren't from the Holy Spirit. And so Paul corrects them. And John helps us understand how that operates in the local church. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verse 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the first test for, for concerning out of this text, verses 1 through 6, the first test for discerning the presence of the Spirit of God is does the person accept Jesus Christ's true nature? Do they accept that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man? Do they accept the incarnation of Christ, that he was, he was born of a virgin so that he would be fully man, but born from the Spirit of God, impregnating Mary, so that he would be fully God, fully man, fully God? And if a person denies the nature and character of Christ and his mission, which is to save the lost, they are deceived. Now, every, in our culture, when you get into the intellectual world, they will give assent to the historicity of Jesus. They'll say what? He was a good, yeah, he was a good teacher. He was a good rabbi. But they won't say in the intellectual world, no, he was fully God. They'll give a sense, no, he was man. It's just the opposite. In, in the um, New Testament times, they didn't believe, they thought Jesus was just a mirage. They believed the opposite from nowadays. They, they didn't believe he was the real thing. They believed that he was just kind of, an, kind of a, a, what we would say is a hologram. Jesus is just a hologram. He wasn't fully man. He was divine, but he wasn't. And when you do, when you take that away, here, here, Christian, here's what they take away. They take penal substitutionary atonement away. Because in order for Jesus to pay, for our, pay the price for our sins, in order for him to atone for our sins, he had to be fully man and fully God. And so John says the test is how do the... How do they treat the character and the nature of Jesus? And finally, verses 4 through 6. Little children, you are from God. And overcome. This is one of the most awesome verses in John because he gets at what's at stake here in this local church, which in Ephesus, which is spiritual warfare, and it's what's at stake in our church. Is there is a battle for this church, whether we will stay gospel Christ-focused or we'll pivot. And there's a, there's a group of churches where I live up, up in the North Shore. They're evangelical pastors, but they're pivoting. They're pivoting to more. These are evangelical pastors. They're pivoting to a social agenda of the day. And it is indeed horrifying because that pivot may gain a few, say, How can we put this and, and say it correctly? It may gain a few more people, a few more noses, a few more nickels, a little bit more noise. But eventually we have seen century after century that when a church pivots to the social agenda of the culture, it loses its passion for the transformation and the power that's available to change a life and to set a, a man or a woman on a new direction, a direction that will glorify God and result in the blessing and the favor of God, not only upon their life, 
but their family's life. And not only their family's life, but the next generation and the generation after that. I was the first person in my family to become a believer. And because of that, my son and his family and my daughter and her family, they're believers. And my hope is that my grandchildren will be believers too. And it all started, it all started by one person giving their life to Jesus Christ. John writes, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who, it's just so awesome. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we don't have a disposition of fear. We don't have a disposition of being cowardly. Paul writes this in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's a power of God into salvation first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Are you ashamed? Our culture wants to shame us. And we should have courage to stand up. We shall not be ashamed. We shall not be kowtowed. We shall not cower back from proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. For, who, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And what John is saying contextually here is that which was from the beginning, both in 1 John and, and the, and the uh, Gospel of John, that which was from the beginning. Paul says it a little differently in 1 Corinthians 15. That which I received from the Lord that I passed on to you. It's the word of God. It's the bedrock of our faith. It's what gives us access to knowing God's character in his heart. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So when we summarize this for us so far in the book of John, they were of the truth and the test of overcoming is this. They abided in community. John calls them his little children, and he says that affectionately. They abided in community. One of the tests of whether you are a true believer in Jesus Christ or not is do you abide in a local assembly of believers? Do you, do you have connection? Do you, it's like the, my fingers are attached to my hand. That's what it's like to be part of a local church, is that you're connected and you 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 participate, and you let people love you, and you love them. They abided in community. They rejected false teaching. John writes this, you have overcome them because you've not given in to the false teaching of the day. They abided in Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul, uh, John calls it the anointing. And they abided they rejected the world systems and philosophies of this present evil age, and they abided in the word of God by listening and obeying. And so if you want to keep safe, if you want to keep from being deceived in the midst of a deceptive culture, if you want our church to flourish and move forward in great strides and to see people, men and women and children, born again, saved, transformed by the power of God, then abide in God's word and abide in Jesus Christ and abide in community. 
Because these are the tests that John uses to anchor this church in Ephesus in a way that it would continue to flourish and bring forth, bring forth fruit that would glorify Jesus Christ. I want to say to you this morning, if, if you don't know what it is to abide in Christ, you don't know what it is to abide in the Word, you don't know what it's like to abide in community, here's the first step. The first step is not to try to do anything in your own strength. The first step is listen. Listen to the wooing of the Holy Spirit because He comes to each one of us, each person, one-on-one, -on -one, and He woos us. He says, come to Jesus. He says, Jesus says through the power of the Holy Spirit working to woo the human heart. He says, I'll forgive you your sins. That you've made a mess out of your life. Your, your, your mess is, your life is just fractured and frayed. And the Holy Spirit woos and He says, oh, come to Jesus. Because He'll give you rest. He'll come into your heart and bring His peace. He'll come into your heart and forgive you your sins. And so this morning, wherever you are, wherever you are across the United States or even as we found out last week, even if you're in Italy, open your heart to the wooing of the Holy Spirit right now and invite Jesus Christ to come in and to be the Lord of your life. Maybe you could pray a prayer just like this. Lord Jesus, I, I hear you calling me. I, I want my sins forgiven. I the chaos in my life, I want your peace. The chaos that's in my family, Lord, would you come and help me and rescue my family? Jesus, I need you. I turn to you. Forgive me of my sins. And Lord, put my feet on a path that would lead me to knowing you and to experiencing your peace, and your joy in my life. And I, I pray this in Jesus' name. You know, if you prayed that prayer with us this morning, I want to encourage you to reach out and tell someone. I mean, you might be in a, in a family situation right now. Go downstairs. Go tell someone. Even if they don't know Jesus, go and tell them. And, and when you do that, the, what's going to happen in your heart is the witness of the Holy Spirit's going to cry out in your heart, and your heart's going to go, God is my Father, and I am His child. And so reach out to someone, tell someone, reach out to us, and let us know how we can help you. Let us help you grow and become a true disciple of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, God bless you today. We're on a, on a tight schedule here, and that's all the time they've given me. So until we talk again, uh, may, you know, may you know Jesus and his love and peace and salvation that only comes from him. And may you know his joy in your heart. God bless you guys. Have a great day in the Lord.